always such a special joy for any parent or grandparent to see their child honored. When my father-in-law was nearing 80 years of age, we took him on a long trip so that he could be present when our son was pinned with his military jump wings. Three generations of men in our family have worn this pin, and the pride and joy on my father-in-law's face sure made that long trip worthwhile. You know, the Bible teaches that God the Father wants to see his son, Jesus Christ, honored, and that long ago he formed a plan that would lead to his exaltation. Through our Exodus study, we've discovered that God's plan involved the descendants of Abraham. They were chosen to represent him to the rest of the world. One way in which they were to do this was by keeping the law. The law reflected God's nature. The difficulty with this from a human point of view is that the law had to be kept in its entirety without failure to truly represent God. The standard was so high that the Israelites could never achieve it. Thus, in the tabernacle, God gave them a visual representation of his solution. Nearly 1,500 years before Jesus Christ was born, the tabernacle exalted his person and work. It pointed to him as the solution to mankind's sin problem, and the means by which we can dwell in God's presence. In light of the tabernacle's importance, it's no wonder that the focal point, it's the focal point for a full third of the book of Exodus. The chapters covered by this lesson don't describe its actual construction, but record the pattern given for construction. God met with Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him detailed instructions. Then the last chapters in Exodus, chapters 35 through 40, repeat many of these instructions in order to show that the work was carried out exactly according to God's plan. Now let's pick up in chapter 24, verse 12, where we left off last time, and we see there that sometime after the covenant ceremony, the Lord called Moses back up Mount Sinai. God had important, an important revelation to give him, the blueprint for the building of the tabernacle. Chapter 25 tells us that the Lord's first instruction was to have the Israelites bring an offering. Giving is meaningless when it's done solely out of obligation. The Lord asked for offerings from those Israelites who wanted to give as a response to all he'd done. The offerings the people were to bring were costly items, gifts that were suitable for a king. Indeed, the Lord was their king. The blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and the fine linen, that was the attire of royalty. Many of the offerings required the use of local resources. But where would the former slaves have gotten gold, silver, bronze, fine linen, costly spices, and gemstones? Well, these were the very items the Lord had instructed them to request from their Egyptian neighbors before leaving Egypt. They may also have collected such things from the Amalekites who'd attacked them. 
the purpose of the offering was for the construction of a sanctuary for God, a tabernacle sometimes called the tent of meeting, in which he would dwell among the Israelites. The Lord had promised to be with the Israelites en route to Canaan. The tabernacle was an ever-present reminder of his presence. So God provided a means by which he could dwell among his people. That's a big deal. God provided a means by which he could dwell among his people. Among the many deep longings common to human beings is the ideal of home, a place of security with people who love us unconditionally, where we can rest but also be productive, and where we find relief from our daily pressures and are restored. According to Ecclesiastes 3.11, this longing is from God and ultimately reflects our deep-seated desire for Him. We long to be restored to fellowship with God and to dwell in His presence. In Christ, God came to dwell with us in the flesh. Since the time of Christ, believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling us as a deposit of what is yet to come. Once we're saved, our internal compass has finally been calibrated Godward, and we feel less restless. Yet, our longing for home awaits an ultimate fulfillment that will be satisfied in heaven, where God will forever dwell in our midst. Without doubt, the beauty, the activities, and the fellowship we enjoy with one another in heaven will exceed our wildest imaginations. But, but they alone are not what will satisfy us. We will be satisfied because God is there. I gotta ask, has heaven been on your mind at all this week? You know, from all appearances, those around us might say, we're not really as eager to live with God as we've been for our next meal or our next vacation. Jesus paid a high price to purchase our salvation and earn heaven for us. We can join God's program to honor his son, Jesus, by eagerly anticipating the gift he earned for us, the gift of heaven that awaits. Well, following God's revelation of his plan to symbolically dwell with Israel, he gave Moses a very specific pattern for the tabernacle and all its furnishings. Many have debated the nature of this pattern. Hebrews 8.5 tells us the tabernacle was a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And this was why Moses had to ensure he followed the pattern. So you might wonder, well, did Moses see a, a drawing, like a blueprint for the tabernacle? Or maybe did he have a vision in which he saw an actual structure that exists in heaven? Hebrews 9.24 tells us that the tabernacle, the sanctuary that Jesus entered, the one Moses' tabernacle copied, was heaven itself, not a building in heaven. 
So the truth is, we don't know exactly what Moses saw. If we keep in mind that the tabernacle was a representation of heavenly things, it's not difficult to see that the innermost room of the tabernacle, the most holy place or holy of holies, was a representation of God's throne room. And the ark within it symbolized his throne. It was the place where God symbolically was symbolically present and where he met with Moses. What was most impressive about the ark was its solid gold lid. It was ornately decorated with two golden cherubim, not engraved, but mounted on top, facing one another. The cherubim gazed downward at the cover, with their wings spread upward. God said his presence would rest above the cover between the cherubim. By the way, cherubim is a plural word for cherub. The Bible calls this cover on the ark that I've been describing a caporet, often translated atonement cover or mercy seat. Moses later received instructions for an annual day of atonement on which the high priest was to sprinkle blood on this caporet, thus making atonement reconciliation for the sin of the people. Atone is actually an Anglo-Saxon term that means at one, separated parties brought back together. God's presence was between the cherubim who faced and gazed downward into the ark. What did they see? Inside were the tablets of the law, God's standard. When he looked at it, he would see that it was continually broken. The blood sprinkled on the cover reminded God that his son Jesus would shed his blood to atone for sinners. By his mercy, he made a provision so that we might be at one with him and he could dwell among us. Just outside the most holy place was the area called simply the holy place. Two of the three furnishings in the holy place are described next. The first is the table. Now the table's specific practical function was to hold the 12 loaves of the bread of presence, something that's explained more thoroughly in Leviticus 24. The loaves have more than one symbolic meaning. First, they would have reminded the Israelites of the manna, God's special provision for their physical sustenance. However, thinking of God's provision for their physical needs would have, should have, also reminded them of his provision of his word for their spiritual health. As Moses later said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The table and its loaves would also have reminded the Israelites of the covenant meal they shared with God on Mount Sinai, indicating fellowship and friendship. It pointed ahead to the communion meal enjoyed by new covenant believers and the day in which believers of all time will participate in the heavenly wedding feast. Now the lampstand was an ornate golden 
seven-pronged candelabrum, tree-like in shape, which Jewish people call a menorah. The tabernacle had several layers of heavy coverings, making it dark within. From a practical point of view, the lampstand gave the priests light by which they could conduct their work. Just as the Israelites were to look to God for their bread, they were also to look for him to him for life and for light. Jesus Christ claimed to be the life and the light of the world. By necessity, the tabernacle needed to be portable during the Israel's years of wilderness wandering. The construction design allowed for repeated disassembly and reassembly. The exterior consisted of elaborately decorated curtains draped over wooden frames. Inside, the tabernacle was divided into these two rooms I've mentioned by yet another finely woven linen curtain or veil decorated with cherubim. In Hebrew, this veil is called the parroquet. Since no one could be in God's presence and live, the veil shielded the priests from the ark and the in the most holy place while they worked in the outer room, the holy place. The Israelites only had access to that inner room once a year on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 tells us about that. And even then, Access was only granted to them vicariously through their representative, the high priest. At the moment Jesus died on the cross, this inner curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain was much too thick for human hands to rend. Furthermore, any human attempt to tear such a tall curtain would have come from the bottom up not from the top down. The writer of Hebrews explains the meaning of the torn curtain, writing, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. The torn curtain represents Jesus' body, which was torn on the cross in order that we might be granted direct access to God's throne room. Wow. Well, a courtyard where sacrifices were made surrounded the tabernacle and had two primary furnishings. The first was the bronze altar. It was the largest of all the furnishings and the place where animal sacrifices were made. It was the first item one would encounter upon entering the tabernacle's courtyard, indicating that sacrifice was necessary to proceed further, necessary before one could approach God. Now, chapters 28 and 29, they list for us the priest's ordination, but in the interest of understanding the layout of the tabernacle, let's jump ahead for now to chapter 30, which describes the altar of incense and the wash basin, the tabernacle's final two furnishings, and later we'll return to those other chapters. The altar of incense 
was much smaller than the bronze altar used, used for animal sacrifice. It was placed just outside the veil, the paraquette, in the holy place. Thus, while the ark was the only furnishing in the most holy place, the holy place had three furnishings, the table and the lampstand, positioned across the room from one another, and the altar of incense, which was centered in front of the inner curtain. A special recipe for making the incense was given and never to be duplicated. In daily practice, the incense probably helped to mask the odor of the many slaughtered animals in the courtyard. Additionally, Psalm 141.2, Luke 1, 8-11, and several verses in Revelation indicate that the Israelites understood the rising of incense as a symbol of prayer. Furthermore, according to Leviticus 16.13, on the one day of the year in which the high priest entered the most holy place, the cloud of smoke that rose from the incense concealed the atonement cover on the ark so that the priest would be screened from God's presence and not die. The final furnishing was a basin for washing. The priests had to wash their hands and feet before presenting sacrifices and also before entering the tabernacle as a sign of spiritual cleansing and preparation for service. The basin was conveniently positioned in the courtyard, right between the entrance to the tabernacle and the bronze altar. It reminded the priests that although atonement had been made for their sins at their consecration, their need to wash was still ongoing because they continued to sin. It was important that Moses understood the pattern for the tabernacle and followed it, followed it exactly because the tabernacle was such an important portrayal of the person and work of the coming Messiah, perhaps the most important in the Old Testament. It gave the Israelites insight into the means by which they could enjoy God's presence in their midst. The pattern of the tabernacle had to be followed exactly in order that it would accurately portray Jesus's person and work. I said that twice because it's very important. The tabernacle was the means by which the Lord dwelt with Israel in the days of their wilderness wanderings and settlement in Canaan. Later, after they were well established in the land, the tabernacle was replaced by the more permanent temple, which had the same basic structure and furnishings. But you know, in this day and age, the Holy Spirit indwells each and every believer. Our body is his temple. We are walking tabernacles. What are the implications for us? Well, we have only to look at the tabernacle to see the answer. Would you close your eyes for the next few minutes and visualize with me a walk through the tabernacle. I want you to see how well it explains life in Christ. So let's do that now. We enter the courtyard from the east, the direction in which Cain fled 
when he was cast from Eden. East is the life of sin. Through Christ, I may enter the courtyard and live in fellowship with God. In the courtyard, we encounter the bronze altar, a remind, an immediate reminder of Christ's atoning sacrificial death. Because we're crucified with Christ, the bronze altar is also a reminder of our gratitude and our obligation to be a living sacrifice. We're to completely surrender ourselves and daily yield to his ways. Climbing up the stairs onto that altar seems frightening. But once we're there, we realize it's a blessed surrender. We no longer struggle to live God's way in our own strength. We yield to Jesus and allow him to do his sanctifying work. We then come to the bronze wash basin. In Christ, we've been cleansed of our sins. But just as our bodies need daily bathing, our souls need daily cleansing through confession. We also bathe our souls clean of worldly influence by practicing spiritual disciplines. Through Christ, we're free to enjoy much, but we're not to be mastered by anything but God himself. Next, we walk in through the tent, and within we have a picture of our inner lives with Christ. The heavy drapes providing insulation from the noise outside. This is the place where we regularly retreat to be alone with the Lord. The moment we enter, we find him waiting. There he is, the light of the world and the bread of life, waiting to fellowship with you and with me. We see the lampstand, the light reminding us that God knows each of our next steps and will illuminate the path for us. We allow his light to shine deep into our hearts and also upon his written word. We see ourselves as we truly are in him and we grow in our understanding of the Bible's deep and precious secrets. Our eyes fall upon the table with its bread, a reminder that he will meet our every need. Love, friendship, renewal, strength, contentment. In him, we find all these and more. The more we dwell here enjoying his presence, our feet can't help but run with joy to the golden altar of incense. We fall to our knees in thanksgiving and praise, pouring out our prayers to him. Oh, the privilege of speaking directly to him is rich and satisfying and refreshing. A fragrant aroma that floods the sanctuary of my heart, of our hearts. We look up to see the holy ark of God. We see Jesus's blood covering it and we're again filled with gratitude. Because of that blood, we live in the very presence of God every moment of every day. That blood reminds us a great price has been paid so that we 
can approach our king and that we might call him father. We may not dwell in this sanctuary physically, but inwardly, we should we remain in that place. And if we ever stray and find our relationship with God broken, we are free to quickly return. There's no condemnation within the tabernacle, for by God's grace in Christ, we remain the temple of the living God. One day, we will live physically in his presence, but for now, we're able to know the deep joy of having Christ dwell in us. He is our home. Thank you for joining me in that walk through the tabernacle. Well, let's now go back and take a look at Exodus 28 and 29, which tell us of the people who'd work in the tabernacle. As it turns out, they were as important as the tabernacle's design. Now, as we've learned, the tabernacle was made so that God could dwell among the Israelites. But they, the people themselves, didn't have direct, direct access to God's presence. Only the high priest did as their representative. And he couldn't maintain the tabernacle and all the necessary sacrifices alone. Other priests were needed to assist him. So as a lasting ordinance, the priesthood, the Lord assigned the priesthood to Aaron and his sons. Exodus 28 and 29 first describe their clothing, the special clothing of honor they were to wear, and then their consecration, the consecration ceremony. Aaron, the high priest, was to have several additional special garments that distinguished him from the other priests. He wore an ephod, a breastpiece, a robe, and a turban. Let's think about each of these for a minute. The ephod seems to have been a type of apron with a, a waistband that was suspended at the shoulders by special clasps. On each of these clasps was an onyx stone engraved with the names of six of the tribes of Israel, a reminder to the high priest that he served as the people's representative. Now, the breastpiece was worn over the ephod. It was a type of pouch with 12 gemstones on the exterior and the yumim and thumim inside the pocket. The purpose of this breastpiece was decision-making. It's believed the urim and thumim meaning lights and darks, were stones used for determining God's will. Possibly one meant yes and the other meant no. The Bible never describes the exact nature of their use. The robe worn under the ephod was decorated around the hem with blue, purple, and scarlet tassels shaped like pomegranates, alternating with small gold bells. These bells had a special function in ensuring the high priest could be heard when he entered the holy place before the Lord and wouldn't die. You see, every day, ministering in the holy place, he came dangerously close to God's presence in the most holy place. Entering the presence of a king unannounced simply wasn't done. Thus, announcing one's presence was a matter of honoring the king's dignity. 
Of course, the Lord didn't need to hear the bells to actually know of Aaron's arrival. Nevertheless, the bells honored and acknowledged the Lord as Israel's king. The most important thing about the high priest's turban was the gold plate on the front engraved with the words, Holy to the Lord. The words confirm for the worshiper that since God regarded the high priest, who was their representative, as holy, their own gifts, their sacrifices, would be accepted. Similarly, we don't merit salvation, but God sees Christ's holiness and considers him as our representative. Our acceptance to God is guaranteed by Christ's holiness. Now, chapter 29 informs us about the priest's consecration for sacred duty. It required several steps over a seven-day period. The first step was the priest's washing. Next, they were to be dressed in the specially prepared garments we've already described and anointed with the fragrant oil that was exclusively for this purpose. After the men had been prepared in this way, outwardly, their inner condition was to be addressed. They were sinners like everyone else. If they were to enter God's tabernacle and represent the people before God, their sins had to be atoned. This was the purpose of the sacrifice of the bull. Before the bull was slaughtered, Aaron and his sons were to place their hands on its head, a symbol of the transference of guilt. The animal would die in their place. Because it was a sacrifice for sin, no one was to enjoy eating any of this sacrifice. Next, the first of the two rams was to be sacrificed. In most sacrifices, you see, part of the animal was discarded, part was burned on the altar as a sacrificial and symbolic meal for God, and then the priests and the worshipers ate the remainder. But in this case, the burning of the entire ram indicated a sacrifice of the priest's total dedication to God. The last sacrifice was the ordination sacrifice. And since its purpose was specifically to consecrate the priests for their work, some of the blood was to be put on the priests themselves. This ram was to be sacrificed in a manner more like Israel's most common offerings, a portion burned and a portion eaten. To complete the consecration of the altar, each day for seven days, a bull was to be burned on it. Then, as a reminder of the ongoing need for a permanent sacrifice, each day thereafter, year after year, a one-year-old lamb or ram was to be sacrificed in the morning and another in the evening. So in this way, chapters 28 and 29 describe the priests were to be dressed and consecrated in preparation for their service as the Israelites' representatives at the tabernacle. 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9 and Revelation 5, 10 affirm that all believers today are royal priests. We're priests in the sense that we represent Jesus to others, and we're priests in the sense that we're able to offer 
sacrifices of gratitude. But we don't need to offer sacrifice for forgiveness of sins since Jesus already did that for us by sacrificing himself. Now he lives in heaven, seated at God's right hand, and he is our great high priest. Yes, Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Like the tabernacle, the priesthood also pointed to Christ. Hebrews 7, 23-25 says, Now there have been many of those high priests since death prevented them from continuing in the office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Let's think about that verse for a minute. Do you understand what it means that Jesus saves completely? Oh, this is our blessed assurance that no matter what our need, no matter the nature of our enslavement, Jesus' salvation is comprehensive. He not only forgave our sins, but he's daily sanctifying us. It's our assurance that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. But this Hebrews verse also tells us that as our high priest, Jesus continually prays for us. He petitions God on our behalf. As Louis Burkhoff wrote, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we're negligent in our own prayer life, that he's presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers, and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we're not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for interceding for us. The tabernacle was a visual that portrayed God's plan of redemption and pointed to Jesus. At the end of time, Jesus will be front and center. All of the applause and praise of heaven and on earth will be for him alone. Philippians 2 puts it this way. Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At present, our great high priest is our home. He is saving us completely and he's always interceding for us. Oh, how greatly we should delight in offering him our sacrifices of praise, considering what he's done 
Our sacrifices are pretty small, aren't they? But they are important because they're a means by which we can join God in honoring His Son, Jesus Christ.